We're back with Get to Know an Average Joe, where we meet new friends and find out what makes them tick. Australian way of life. It's, you went from, staggered from a di- one disaster to the next. It, uh, shit happens. And you, you keep going. Well, wh- what's the point of stopping and looking back? I'm Dodie Axe, and I'm glad you're here. Today, we're going to meet Jock White. And when you grow up with a name like Jock, can you be anything but manly? Or how does that work? Well, my parents wanted my first name to be Jock. Why? Uh, Well, that's what they wanted. But my second name was to be Edwin. I was born in 1942, the middle of the war. Not knowing how the war would turn out, my initials would have been J-E-W. And they thought that was unwise, so they put Edwin first and Jock second. Wow, so that was a lot of thinking behind that. But you did grow up being able to do uh, a lot of handy things. We are sitting on a porch right now that you built for your daughter and family. Yeah, growing up on farms, you've always got to be a bit resilient and uh, find things to do. There was not much television. We had a a radio that you could sometimes hear, and that was it. Uh, you, You created something all the time. My dad was a, a proper farmer uh, in the Mallee of Victoria for five years and then we went to the Western District of Victoria on a sheep farm, uh, 483 acres. And uh, uh, My formative years were there from 11 till I left home at 15, yeah. What did that teach you, life on a farm? Oh, to be self-sufficient mainly. It, you don't, in those days, you couldn't just go down to a local hardware shop and buy whatever you may do with what you had. You improvised. Uh, necessity is the mother of inventiveness, isn't it? And, and I learned all that off my dad. He was, he was brilliant. He would uh, fix anything, yeah. What did you do professionally? Because are you, are you retired now or do you, are you still working? Well, yeah, I retired um, in about 2002. Are you busier than ever? When my dad retired, he had no spare time whatsoever. I've got three daughters, of course, I'm bloody busy. <laughs> and they're scattered, one in Melbourne or near us in Victoria and one in Darwin and one in Sweden. So, yeah, the odd jobs are far apart, aren't they? And that's why Marnie had to wait three years for her decking. <laughs> so what did you do professionally? Uh, well, I, I went to an agricultural college for three years and... Uh, Got a diploma out of that and then never used it in my entire life. Uh, and, and when I went to Darwin in 65, I got into the drilling field and that's what I did. I contract drilling for uh, the next 30 years. Yeah. All over the world or in Australia? Uh, mostly in the Territory and Western Australia. But in uh, I did... Drilling in in Bougainville in in Papua New Guinea, and uh, we took a rig over to uh, East Timor in 2001 yeah, after the East Timor crisis. If you remember that, no. It was when the East Timorese rose up against the Indonesian oppressors, but uh, and it became a country about that time and uh, there was a lot of tr- trouble there. UN had a huge presence there and they contracted us to drill wells in, in water wells in all over East Timor. So what was that like being in basically a war zone and drilling? 
you took precautions, of course. It didn't do anything stupid. didn't go where the rebels were. But uh, the ones you felt sorry for, the poor Australian soldiers in full kit in absolutely oppressive um, tropical conditions, and they're in full military gear, like the poor buggers in Afghanistan. And sweat, you know, you just how they survive, I don't know. What did you get to wear? Shorts and T-shirts, thongs. <laughs> so you looked like you were going to the beach. Ah, uh, yeah, but it was a, uh, not quite that easy. But yeah, yeah, it was pleasant. Well, I lived in Darwin. It was the same, same temperature, mm. same humidity, same weather. And when you say you were drilling, and were you always drilling water wells, or were you also drilling for oil and gas? No, no, we we never oil and gas. We uh, did a lot of water wells, but we did site investigation with helicopters and um, over water, jack up platforms, all sorts of drilling. Yeah, and but not not big oil well stuff. Did you love your work? No. So how did you how did you get through it year after year? No, it it was fine. It was fine. But yeah, you, you're out in remote areas in stinking hot sun before the advent of uh, air conditioned camps. You know, in a swag, uh, getting up at, before Sparrowfart in the morning and uh, working through till night because there was nothing else to do in the bush. And you're 400 miles from the nearest pub. So yeah, you just worked. So you say in the bush, and I'm going to bring up this word outback, and as an American speaking to an Australian, I'm surely misusing it, but can you describe what that open territory is like and and what that was like, you know, bringing water into those areas? Most of that outback stuff was um, drilling, diamond drilling for mines and things. We did some remote water well work, but a mob in Alice Springs did most of them. Uh, we did a lot of diamond drilling for prospective mine sites, core sampling. I don't, you probably don't know what core sampling. I sure. Well, I guess you, you, you. It's like sending a scout out to see what's there, and then they report back. Is that what that means? Or they do aerial surveys, magnetometer surveys by plane, and groundwork, and the geologists would go in and do more groundwork, and then pick, select sites for drill holes to go down to see if they could hit an ore body. And the, 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 the rule was that the geologist would drive as far as he could in, a, in his four-wheel drive Toyota and then tell us with our 30-tonne drilling rig that the drill site's another 200 metres in the bush. <laughs> You've got to get there. So, yeah, but it was remote stuff, yeah. And you say diamond drilling. Uh, it's a tube, a very complicated tube of drill rods uh, with a diamond set in the tip, the drilling bit at the bottom, and you take core samples. They feed up the tube and you pull them out of the hole. So you've got a perfect sample of what the rock is you're drilling through. So what what does that do with your relationship to Earth? Like, what do you think about, like, when, when you see Earth or you see a mountain, you obviously know much more about that than your average person does. I now see that I contributed to some of these dastardly mine sites that are left around the world as scars on the uh, environment, and that's a bit sad. I was drilling at Rum Jungle in in the 60s as a young 22-year-old, and uh, you didn't really care too much about the, didn't know about the environment then. But to see the pollution that's caused, uh, it's a little town 
70 miles south of Darwin, where the first uranium mine uh, in Australia was in 1954. And 60-odd years later, there's still no growth in some of the rivers there. It's just dead from the overflow from the tailing stems and pretty, pretty sad. So do you think that there is a, a good way to mine the earth for the, uh, the riches within? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. You can mine, well, not sustainably, but you can not leave big scars on the landscape, yeah. But big money controls it, and government's controlled by big money, so, I, yeah. Mm. The, the mines just declare themselves broken and leave the clean-up to someone else. It's, uh... You have been extraordinarily close, digging and getting into it and seeing, you know, some core bits of the planet, I guess. So the question is... When you see ground or when you see a, the mountain, like, what do you think? What, is, what does that mean to you? Ah, just like anyone else, because when we left a site, we leave a little hole in the ground that wide mm. and might go down. And you're showing just your, your, the palm of oh, your hand. Sorry. Yeah, that's a bit ridiculous and about three or four inches diameter. It may go 100 metres, it might go 800 metres, but that's all you see. And out of every drill site, hundred drill sites maybe one gets investigated further and out of every investigation one in a hundred becomes a mine so it's remote chance that you will find core that will be become a mine mm-hmm. when I see mountains love it but uh, you where you go in the mountains for scenery you don't see bloody great gaping mine sites do you it's it's all well in the stride it's usually in the remoter areas if we go back to the theme of Jock, who does what is necessary, you are a person who has no problem through a crisis or through a natural disaster. Am I right about that? If you live through the initial disaster, yeah, you, you'll survive. Yeah, yeah. So do you have a particular story about a cyclone that I would like to hear? Well, we were in Darwin when uh, Cyclone Tracy hit in, in 74. That's not quite true. We were on holidays, but I got back the next day. And our house, we'd built ourselves out of 1888 railway line, Krupp Steel, from Germany. And our place didn't get damaged at all. And we had our own electricity and own water. So it didn't really affect us. But Darwin was absolutely devastated, yeah. But if you didn't get killed in the cyclone, you survived. You know, so what did you do? You, you turned around and went back to help people, if I understand correctly. Well, I went back. Um, I was in Melbourne and lobbed at the airport so I was working for an airline a little territory airline called Conair in those days same as the movie name Um, (laughs) but with a totally different theme I guess it was an outback airline went to all the remote cattle stations and whistle stops and Aboriginal settlements and we I got to Alice Springs and um, (laughs) Christine Davey was flying she was the captain and uh, I lobbed got on and there was a very senior police officer and a very, very rich businessman on the plane. And a young constable came on and said, who are you? He said, I'm, I'm senior superintendent so-and-so. You'll have to get off, sir. You're not necessary in Darwin. Get off the aeroplane. Went to this businessman I knew quite well. And he said, you're not going, sir. You have to get off. And came to me and I just said, well, I'm an engineer on the flight. So, oh, you can go. So... <laughs> I went up and sat next to Christine and flew back to Darwin, yeah. And uh, Darwin was devastated. So what did you do in the devastation? What were you, what were you doing? 
Well, because we had an airline, we were concentrating on getting all the uh, Aboriginal patients in hospitals and the, the school children out to their remote settlements. So we just loaded planes, overloaded planes, and flew them out by the hundreds, yeah. That, when they all went out of town, we just helped clean up. But How? How? Like, what, what did you need to do? Well, you cleaned up your own place. You went around to your mates' places and you cleaned it all out. By the, that time, the Navy had been through and cleaned uh, all the dead refrigerators and freezers out. They did an amazing job in horrific conditions. And uh, a funny story there, my cousin was the naval officer in charge of the clean-up of Darwin. And I went round to see him at Admiralty House and uh, he said, I couldn't understand it. My, my crews worked so hard. In the morning they'd clean two houses, all the, all the rubbish and crap there was and rotten freezers and maggots and things. But in the afternoon I'd only, they'd only do one house. And so I followed them around and the people were so happy with them that they were giving them hot beer all morning <laughs> and they were all pissed by bloody lunchtime and couldn't do two houses. So, yeah, yeah. Slowed them down. Yeah, slowed them right down <laughs> in that heat. It, it was the middle of the wet season. It, it was just terrible. And no power. The power station was shut down. I don't know for how long, but it was quite a while, yeah. No how fun. many? Do you remember how many days was the rescue effort or the clean-up effort? Oh, it, it went on for, really, for years, the cleaning up, yeah. But after you finished actively taking people, from, you know, from Darwin into their their homes you said you were overloading airplanes after you got people where they needed to go did you mentally process what you and they had been through no not really it's it's part of life it it, it comes along every 40 years in darwin and blows the town away um and if you're not injured or killed you're fine and but remember that they flew 27,000 people out of, we didn't, but the airlines did, 27,000 people out in, the, in 15 days or something, some colossal amount. So there was not a lot of people left in Darwin, really. After the Cyclone Trace in Christmas 74, the, everyone shifted out in the rural areas and they couldn't get water wells drilled. So I thought, I'll diamond drill it from way back. So I bought a water well rig and kept working for the airline for about six months but then we got so much work we just went out and took the punt and uh, borrowed uh, $13,700 to buy the first rig and you know that sounds a piddling amount but I couldn't sleep for two years worrying about how I was going to pay off uh, $13,000. Isn't it funny hey? Now you go and get a loan of half a million and think nothing of it. For a car. Yeah, 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 for a car. Yeah. Not even a drilling machine. But so the airline was your first job, and then you became a driller. No, no. When I first went to the Territory, I got involved in drilling. And then a pilot mate of mine said, oh, there's a job going at Connie. And I'd, I'd, been, with, I'd been with Mines Branch, and then I'd been sent to Bogan. I went to Rum Jungle, then to Bougainville, and came back from Bougainville. Um, and... Somewhere around that time, Namo, my old mate Namo said, oh, there's a job at Conair. So I took that. And till the cyclone, I was quite happy there. But uh, then cyclone came and blew everything away and everyone wanted water bores. So I I saw an opening and took it. Well done. 
Marnie was born by the time the cyclone hit, right? She yep. was in 72? Shailish and Marnie okay. were both born then, yeah. She so what... So in this natural disaster and you have these young kids, like, did that, I mean, did you not have an emotional reaction that may, worried about your your little girls at home or, you know, the, the risk that you were taking going back and helping people in Darwin? We, we lived on a five-acre block with, with that shed made out of Krupp 1888 railway line. Uh, deadly snakes everywhere. Buffaloes walking through our camp all the time. And no. You looked after your kids to death, but yeah, it was the environment. They grew up in it. There was no one around us. Yeah, no. Of course, you you wouldn't let harm come to them knowingly, but but yeah, you don't. You don't, obviously you don't want to, but you worry about it. And, and you're not going to mollycoddle them, are you? Completely, you can't. You can't. Because besides all those deadly snakes and everything else there are mango trees and there's wonderful tropical you know beauty and fruit other places ours didn't have too much ours was a five acre pretty scrubby block yeah yeah and Marnie's biggest disappointment my eldest daughter after the cyclone our 15 chooks we never found a feather (laughs) they god knows where they ended up but because you must remember that there wasn't a leaf on a tree for a five-mile swathe. Every leaf had gone. Yeah. It was just bare, like autumn here. Where do you get that sort of moving on, that, you know, you've been through something that is incredible, that has moved people's lives and destroyed them, but you keep moving forward. Where do you get that gumption? You've struck on a very good word. My mother used to use the word gumption. <laughs> you've got no gumption. Yeah. Um, but she said it to you that way, no gumption. Yeah, or to my brother mainly, not me. <laughs> uh, I, look, I don't know. It's Australian way of life. It's and and knocking around the bush. You know, you you went from staggered from a, one disaster to the next. That uh, shit happens, mm. and you, you keep going. Well, what's the point of stopping and looking back? I'm asking you a question. Oh, okay. So I actually think it achieves uh, maybe learning how to adjust so that when you move forward, you maybe won't make the same mistake. But it's not like in our world today that we are learning from world history. So, But you're learning. You, by putting it behind you, you're not saying, well, I disca- discount or discard all that. It, it's all a lesson of life, isn't it? And, and you move forward. You carry that with you. And it's like making mistakes, is it? You don't do the same thing unless you... Hopefully not. <laughs> unless you're a driller and absolutely stupid. But uh, yeah, yeah. so you carry it with you. Let's get to family because we are, um, as I said earlier, we're sitting on the porch that you built for your daughter. And Marnie is a, a great family friend of ours. Uh, and you can hear our kids playing together on the trampoline around the corner. Tell us how you met uh, your wife and, uh, and the family that you raised. Yeah, my wife, well, she comes from the same locality as me in Victoria. She was in Warrnambool and I was in a little town called Woolsthorpe, 25 miles apart. We knew each other maybe to see, but did not know each other at all. And uh, I lobbed in Darwin after shearing in Queensland oh, in July 65. And one of the first pe- people I ran into was Ronnie, my wife. And uh, yeah, but just developed from there. 
which was a bit lucky because we only had to go to one place for holidays because her parents lived near mine. So, <laughs> yeah, it made it easy. And, and then you, you have three daughters, you said. Yes, I've been blessed with three daughters. Yeah, that, that, love them all. Yeah. There was no sarcasm in that at all. No, no. <laughs> blessed. Blessed is the operative word, yeah, yeah. And what's it like now being a grandfather? Who is the first grandchild? Uh, my, well, grandson Caleb, he's uh, nearly 22 now. He's my second daughter's only child. And Marnie's got three, um, a, a daughter and two sons. And But we've got to vi- travel a long way to visit them. Yeah, yeah. Is Grandpa Jock different from Papa Jock? Are you different as a grandfather than you were as a father, or than you are as a father? Ah, uh, how do I know? You try and be the same, but uh, I'm crankier. <laughs> really, as a grandfather, you're crankier. Oh, you, they, they, I love them, but they, they can annoy you. <laughs> we used to call my grandpa Grumpa. Right, yeah, Grumpy, yeah, 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 and. Because my hearing's bad and I don't hear what they say and, and I, I can't stand a lot of background noise because of my deafness, um, yeah, it, it, it gets a bit overpowering at times. Tell me about your, your equality person. Like, this porch is gorgeous. There's, there are no flaws anywhere. So quality is something I think that drives you, I would guess. Tell me about that. Uh, I don't know what to say with that. I can tell you a few mistakes with this. <laughs> so you're a perfectionist. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 far from it. But um, if you do a job, do it as well as you can. Uh, don't take the shortcuts. And uh, my back tells me that we didn't take many shortcuts here. <laughs> when you need to make a big decision in life, for example, you sold your hobby farm, right? And you guys moved or did you? Yep. Is that right? Yeah. So when you needed to make that big decision, how what what did you use to help you move forward in that decision? How do you, what's your process? Are you asking how I got over the loss of the farm? Oh, actually, no. I'm asking how you came to the decision to sell the farm. Ah, but how, how did you get over the loss is a different question. I will definitely ask that. The second first, getting over the loss, you make a decision, you don't look back on it. We loved the farm. We had 10 great years there. But then I found that I was rolling the quad bikes. We lived on very steep hills. And the quad bikes were tipping over a lot more often. And I'd had had to have a hip replacement while I was down there. Not from the quad bike, but wear and tear. And the, t- it, the riding was on the wall. The time had come to get off the property. It was just too hard. If you were to put together your favorite day anywhere in the world any age that you could be what are those elements what is your favorite day no idea you'd have i'd have to think about that uh you could say the birth of the kids and all that be the sentimental but uh if we go in on an everyday level then just like any old day you know, do you work? Do you read? Do you have a nice meal? What do you do? Uh, I read a lot. Watch very little telly now because it is crap. Uh, I won't get any argument there, will I? I love a good TV program. I watch a lot of TV, but I, th- I like to think that it's quality TV. But you're, <laughs> you're right. There's a lot of crap out there. Yeah, yeah. I, more so in Australia, I think. No, no. I, I still do a lot at my, my daughter's middle daughter's got ten acres. 
20 minutes from us, so I do a lot of work. She's got horses, always wants stables and stuff put up. So spend a lot of time there and we still getting our garden in order on our little quarter acre block now. So yeah, it keeps me busy. I've got to have a project, got to have a project. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. The not-so-sentimental Jock White. He's actually the third parent of a friend I've gotten to meet here, and that is a particularly fun way to learn about the person who's not being interviewed. Thanks for listening to Get to Know an Average Joe, my occasional podcast about people who are far from average, but they don't make it to magazine covers or Instagram fame. We'll be back soon with another new average <clears throat> Joe or Josephine. And now, if you'll excuse me.